Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the U.S. Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This week, we are going to talk about quotas. Here are Donald Trump's thoughts on quotas. Well, I don't like the quotas as much as the tariffs. I never have because the quotas mean you might run out of material. I never want to run out of material. But, you know, we have on steel 25 percent, on aluminum 10 percent. American imports of steel and aluminum worth about $48 billion in 2017. Well, those have already been hit with U.S. import restrictions. But for steel, which was $31 billion of those imports, about $6 billion of that was actually hit with quotas. And 50 percent of the quota was actually targeted at South Korean steel. As the president mentioned, quotas are different to tariffs. With the tariffs, you're affecting the price through a tax. With a quota, you are restricting the quantity of metal that can come into the country. To help us make sense of it all, we are bringing back our Trade Talks lawyer, Ambassador Jennifer Hillman. Loyal listeners should know Jennifer very well by now, former general counsel at USTR, former USITC commissioner, and former appellate member of the World Trade Organization. But as Samaya mentioned, between 1993 and 1995, Jennifer was Ambassador Jennifer Hillman, the chief textiles negotiator for the United States. And one of her jobs then was to administer the U.S. quotas for clothing and textiles under something called the multi-fiber arrangement. And this lasted from the early 1970s until 2005. We'll also be hearing from Aaron Padilla, who is the Senior Advisor for International Policy at the American Petroleum Institute. That's the trade association for the American oil and gas industry. He represents them. And so he'll be able to explain how his industry, how American importers of steel are thinking about these quotas. Okay. With tariffs, you first have to make the decision of what products are covered and then the level of the tariff that you're going to apply. With quotas, you have to decide first which products are covered and then how much you're going to let in, defined over what time period. And then you need to decide how much flexibility you're going to give to the importers and the exporters, the people who are actually trying to use this thing. They might want to move the quota allocations between different products or, say, export more today in exchange for a tighter quota tomorrow. So shift the quota across time. Here's Jennifer. The strictest quotas that you can possibly put on are the ones that are very small in quantity and that have no ability to uh, move the quota across time periods or as between one category of quota versus another. Those are the tightest. Remember, as the president said, with a tariff, if you really need to import a product, you can. But with a quota or one of these quantitative limits on steel or aluminum, you can get to a situation where the importers and the exporters, they want to trade, but the U.S. customs officials are just blocking it because the quota is already full. So if you try to bring in the product anyway, well, that could lead to problems. Your only options, if you've brought it in and the quota is full, is to store it at your expense or send it back to where it came from. Both of those are expensive options. So almost no importer or exporter wants to be caught up in a quota embargo. We asked Jennifer to describe the Trump administration's steel quota. Well, when the original quotas were announced, at least with respect to South Korea, the understanding was that it was going to be a limit set at 70% of the average volume of trade over the previous three years. And that worked out to about um, 2.68 million tons of steel coming in for Korea. And if that had been the way that the quota had been allocated, 2.68 million tons for all of the Korean steel, 
I think the Koreans would not have had as much of a difficulty as they had. What ended up happening is when they announced the quota, the Trump administration decided to divide up that 2.68 million tons into 54 separate, much smaller units um, and set an individual quota for each one of the 54. And then to add on top of it a restriction on how much of that un- of that amount for each 54 could come in in any given calendar quarter of the year. So there was a, a 54 total limits plus a quarterly limit, so a grand total of 216 separate quotas that were established within this 2.68 million tons. These 216 separate quotas were announced late in the day on April 30th, and they went into effect at one minute past midnight on May 1st. So many of the traders didn't know until hours before that the steel that was already on the water was going to be hit by this quota. Now, that may not be such a big issue if there's actually flexibility to shift the limits around a bit. So if you need to, you can exchange a looser quota in one category or during one time period for a tighter quota elsewhere. So was there any flexibility in this case? There was none at all. So there is no ability by any of the exporters in Korea or in Brazil or in Argentina to move any of the quota, what is referred to in quota terms as swing, to move the quota from, to swing it from one category into another category. So the limits are absolutely fixed. And there was no ability to do what is, again, historically done, which is to allow you, if you didn't use all of your quota in one time period, to send some of that unused quota into the next time period. Or alternatively, if you get right up to the end of the year and you're short quota, you were historically going to be allowed to borrow from next year and pull next year's quota into this year. None of those flexibilities were provided to any of the three countries that have these steel quotas. If you look at the United States' recent experience with quotas, this is not normal. Again, it's very draconian in comparison to all of the other quotas. We used to have a lot of quotas on textile and clothing imports. They all had significant amounts of swing and, again, significant amounts of this ability to borrow quota from next year if you needed it or to take unused quota and carry it forward into the next year. In the textiles industry, it's very important because fashion changes. I mean, one year dresses are really hot and the next year skirts are really hot. And so you want to be able to move your dress quota into your skirt quota or vice versa. Some years, denim is really hot. Other years, nobody wants denim. So you need to be able to follow those kind of fashion trends, if you will, the demand trends uh, that are going on in the, in the market in order to be able to make the best use of the quotas. With such tight limits and so little flexibility, there's a risk that these quotas make importers' lives really difficult. Part of the problem with quotas is, again, this hard and fast end to them. And they always create a tremendous amount of pressure for those that really need the goods. Uh, So again, if it's a critical piece that's going to go into something that is essential for a given company, they're going to push very, very hard to get the quota opened. And these can be, you know, in the textile world, it was always for me, um, either the quota would close on bridal gowns and I would end up getting lots of calls from 
soon-to-be brides telling me that I was effectively ruining their life uh, because their wedding gown was sitting in an embargo and couldn't I please, please, please open up the quota. And after you get, you know, 20 or 30 of these incredibly tearful phone calls, you finally try to figure out some way to open the quota. Or typically, the other one that would always embargo is youth sports teams. So here I am depriving the Little League team of fill-in-the-blank place from the ability to play in their big tournament that's coming up because all of their uniforms are sitting in an embargo. So you end up getting these calls from every parent, coach, and, and you know, eight-year-old saying, begging to please open up the quota. Now, I doubt in steel and aluminum that you're going to get that kind of a demand, but certainly there will be these individual products that a company desperately needs that is only made or their only known source, particularly if it's for a product that they have to qualify to go into their machinery, they need it, and they need it now, and they can't wait a quarter for the quota to open, and they certainly can't wait all the way until January 1st to be able to get access to this material. It's critical for their particular operation. And so there will be these constant pressures to open up, open up, open up. We asked Jennifer to come up with an example. Good example is what's going on when you need to build a major pipeline production, where all of a sudden you're going to have a much increased demand for oil country tubular goods, OCTG, and the line pipe and the drill pipe that goes along with that. So anybody would like to be able to move quota from some of the sheet products, the flat products, into these tubular products at a time in which there's a big demand to build pipeline. When there's fracking going on, when there's a new pipeline going in in West Texas, as there is, those are the products that are more in demand at that moment in time. Here's Aaron Padilla to explain the concerns of the oil and gas industry. They're really big consumers of steel. In the oil and natural gas industry, sometimes you have surges of needs for products. This normally corresponds with major capital investments for new facilities that require steel. Examples of those can include pipelines or major new manufacturing facilities to process hydrocarbons. When you're implementing these projects, you have a very specific window of time when you need the product, and you need quite a lot of that product in a small window of time. So that's where the need to import it on a very tight time schedule and a surge of product within a very short window can occur. And we already see that in the case of the oil country tubular goods and pipes pools that the quota is coming close to being filled on a quarterly basis, or in one case for pipes uh, spools, the quota for the year was already filled by the time it was implemented by the United States because it was implemented mid-year. This inflexibility is going to be really frustrating for the exporters who are allowed to send lots of cheaper steel when what they really want to do is sell the more valuable bespoke stuff. Again, had the quota been very flexible with relatively broad categories, the Koreans could have uh, made sure that they provided for the quota to mostly go to their producers of the higher-end products, the oil country tubular goods and the line pipes and the drill pipes. They could have pushed a lot of the quota to those products and cut back on some of the lower value product. And at the end of the day, the Koreans as a value proposition wouldn't have been cut very severely. Their tonnage would have been cut, but their value of what steel they were sending could have remained relatively near what they had been sending. But by dividing it up in this very micro way um, and by making sure that, in fact, the Koreans cannot allocate more than a limited amount to the high-value product, you are, you are taking that away. And by dividing it up into all of these limits, there's simply no way that they will be fully utilized. 
a lot of them will be will go with a, a good 10, 20 percent of it will simply go unused. So the cut is actually much more dramatic than a 70 percent cut. Clearly, the Trump administration wants to impose very tight limits on these steel imports, mainly to stop companies from getting around them. The more flexibility you give to exporters or governments to essentially rejig the quota, the more scope there is for them to adjust to their own advantage. What happened in the 1980s when the Japanese faced quotas going into the American market is they said, okay, well, we can only export a certain number of cars to the US, so we are darn well going to export the really expensive ones because they're the most valuable ones. So now you might think that by setting these really precise, rigid limits by this quota, the Trump administration is trying to avoid this incentive to innovate that could be caused if you have a very loose quota that allows countries to essentially just pick the high-value products and export those. They clearly want the American producers to be the ones making that high-value-added stuff. On the U.S. side, as these products come in, it's essentially first-come, first-served. And that's a nightmare because it introduces the risk that the product is sent in anticipation of it getting in under the quota, and then it turns out the quota is filled. There are a couple of different ways to potentially get around that risk. You could have the American government auction off the right to use the quota to sell these steel products into the U.S. market. And then an economist would show you that by doing such an auction, you could actually have the government earn exactly as much revenue as the government would be getting if it had simply set a tariff on these steel products instead. Alternatively, you could have the South Korean government organize the allocation of the quota limits to these steel producers. And in that situation, it turns into the equivalent of what's known as a voluntary export restraint. Well, in the past, the way quotas have typically evolved is that the government on the foreign side, so say the South Korean government or the Brazilian government, will figure out a way to allocate the quota to its exporters so that they're all not trying to beat out each other in terms of getting their goods in first. Um, And they will find a way to then allocate that quota as among their various producers, whether they auction it, whether they do a licensing system. But they will find a way, the government will find a way to make sure that Um, Each one of the various Korean producers that needs access in that product gets a fair share of whatever is the total amount of quota. Here's Aaron explaining some more about what's going on. The South Korean process is still evolving, as we understand, and it's not exactly apparent for U.S. consumers exactly how that's being administered on, on their side. And the other question that we have is, what's the communication between U.S. CBP the Customs Authority, and the Korean Steel Association on the South Korean side, there's a few things that can go wrong. One has to do with the timing of the way that a quota is administered and allocated. There's the potential for South Korea, for example, to authorize the export of steel to the United States that they have deemed to be within the quarterly or the annual quota. In the few weeks that it takes to cross the Pacific, it will come and land in the United States on another date. And at that moment, Customs and Border Protection, CBP here in the United States, will log entry and then check to see if it can fit under the quarterly or the annual quota. The time lag can be a problem in terms of allocating it under the same time period that the authorities in Korea and the authorities in the United States are deeming it to be landed in the U.S. This can take place over the course of one quarter to the next or one year to the next. The worry is that A U.S. company believes that 
a shipment of steel from the United States uh, to the United States from Korea has been authorized by the South Koreans to fit under the quota. But then it arrives in the United States at a different period in time and under a different system of record keeping by CBP and then is not allowable because maybe the quota has been filled or the calculation has been made in a different way by CBP on the United States end, which means that your only option is to wait for the quota to open again. You can turn the shipment around, you can store it under bonding here in the United States, or you can destroy it. Those are your three options, but you just have to wait until the quota opens again to take delivery of the material. Another problem is how the country of origin is classified for steel that's imported from somewhere else into the United States. The global steel industry and the global steel value chain usually involves more than two countries. And it is the case for some products that the U.S. oil and natural gas industry uses and imports from overseas that it originates in South Korea, which is subject to a quota with the United States. But then the steel may go to another country, Turkey or Mexico or Brazil. It may be manufactured in that location into another product, which is the final one that our industry needs and imports from Turkey or Brazil. The question is, how does that get classified? Is it an an import from Turkey, or is it an import from Brazil, or is it an import from South Korea? This is a critical question because two of those countries are subject to a quota and the other one is not. And so we have questions as to how Customs and Border Protection will be administering the quota and what their view is in terms of how it should be classified in terms of the country of origin. The risk and the problem is that a U.S. oil and natural gas company may be expecting to import steel and have that steel be classified as an import from Turkey. But Customs and Border Protection may view the steel to have come from South Korea because the product originally came from South Korea and was manufactured into something else in Turkey. So they would deem it to be uh, not allowable potentially under a quota that may already be filled. So the problem is that you again can't land and import and use the steel that you were expecting because you thought it was coming from a country that's not subject to the quota and the authorities in the U.S. believe that it is coming and classify it as such. It sounds like a lot of hassle if you're a South Korean steel company. So I asked Jennifer, why bother going through all of this trouble to export your steel to the United States? That's easy. It's because the prices in the United States are higher than they are anywhere else in the world. And now with tariffs on everybody else in the world, the the gap between the U.S. price and the rest of the world price for steel is getting wider and wider. And the U.S. prices are commanding a significant premium over everywhere else. So it is worth a lot to a Korean exporter to go through all of this hassle and take the risk about whether their goods are going to beat the quota or not because the prices in the U.S. are so much higher. We should obviously point out that these quotas are restricting the supply of steel into the American market and raising the price, and that is lovely for the people in the steel industry who want higher prices. But analysis from my colleagues here at the Peterson Institute shows that this is a really expensive way of saving what turns out to be a small number of jobs. When Gary Huffbauer and Eric Awada analyzed a 1999 piece of legislation that would have imposed an American steel quota, their rough-and-ready calculation was that it would have cost American households about $800,000 for each job saved. Now, maybe for President Donald Trump and for the people in the steel industry affected, it's worth it. But that's a lot of money. And we should also mention that this week on Twitter, Danny Roderick took various people to task for claiming that tariffs would lower or increase total jobs, destroy or create jobs. 
His point was that often trade policy essentially reallocates jobs. The better way to think about it is probably that you may be trying to boost employment in one sector, but that leads to all sorts of unintended consequences throughout the rest of the economy. That's right. The $800,000 figure is basically what it costs to stop reallocating people to other sectors of the economy. In that case, to keep jobs in the steel sector. And that is all for Trade Talks. Huge thanks to Jennifer Hillman of Georgetown Law and Aaron Padilla of the American Petroleum Institute. Tell everyone you know about the podcast, tweet out links to your favorite episodes, tweet us nice things. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because two kinds of protectionism are better than one. Give us another episode topic to talk about. What if we ever run out of episode topics? It's nice to please let us run out of episode topics. <laughs> it's nice for us to not do a tariff episode. True, true.